Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 73 of Unmasked. I am your host, Neil Getzlow. As always, thank you so much for coming on this journey with me. I appreciate all my faithful listeners out there. So glad that you are back. I'm so glad to be back. I took a week off last week. I'll fill you in details on that in just a second. And uh, hey, thanks to all the new listeners out there. I appreciate uh, you finding this podcast and for for listening. I hope you enjoy what you hear. I encourage you to check out some of the older episodes and, and catch up on some of the great interviews that we've had here on Unmasked. Uh, you can also learn more about me over on my website, neilgetzlow.com. So yeah, so last week I, I took the week off from the show. I um, had some, in my professional world, had some business travel I had to do. But then uh, last week I also had a chance to participate in a conference, a, a uh, anti-sex trafficking conference and a chance to share my perspective as part of that on the demand side of trafficking and exploitation. And I want to thank uh, my good friend, Heidi Olson, who's been on the show before. Thank you for for um, inviting me in and letting me participate. It was humbling to be part of the event. I also, uh, Russ Tuttle from Stop Trafficking Project was there to share his perspective um, we, we heard from a couple of survivors while at this conference, Megan Connors, one of them, she's a victim and survivor of sex trafficking. She does some work with, um, human trafficking, human trafficking training center. She was there to share her testimony and, and I'm hoping to get her on the show in the weeks ahead. I know we've been talking about it for a while, so I'm excited to, to bring her on here. She has an amazing story to share and, and also just has a, a very, uh, unique perspective uh, on what she went through and what trafficking and exploitation looks today. And, you know, and I sitting there in that conference last week, it just made me think how much more I still have to learn about, about this, this industry and what's happening. You know, Megan, one of the things Megan talked about was how hard it is for people to break out of trafficking because of the housing situation today and the housing crisis that's going on for trafficked women and just the overall lack of resources that that many of these women and victims are, are dealing with trying to get out. And it was just such a humbling experience to be able to to participate and to listen. And and I'd also say it just also made me realize that more than ever, I don't I don't think you can have this conversation about sex trafficking and exploitation without talking about the demand side of it. And how men are contributing to this problem, and that's being that the demand is being fed by pornography, and and I had a chance to be bold and, and talk about that at this conference. It was there was probably about seventy five or so people, and it was not necessarily um, an audience I'm used to talking to. It was made up of healthcare professionals, um, mental health professionals. Uh, and law enforcement um, from across uh, the Topeka and Kansas City area. So a very different audience for me, but for the most part, they were pretty well receptive. In fact, one, the, the person, other person who organized the event um, came up to me afterwards and she's like, I've never, I've, I've never heard a man stand up and, and talk about what you talked about before. And, um, you know, it just, gave me some game. It just energized me and gave me encouragement and let me know, lets me know that, that I'm on the right track and that, um, the voice of demand has to be out there. And 
Well, it's not necessarily the it's not necessarily the story that I want to be talking about, but it's a story that God gave me, and I am going to to be out here and talking about it uh, and continue to help educate people around the dangers of pornography and and help call men out of of what they're doing. So that's why I'm excited to have today's interview to share with you and uh, today's guest is someone that's been on the Unmasked podcast before, Andrea Hines. I'll, I'll put a link to her older show in the show notes, but uh, Andrea uh, is from uh, Edmonton, Alberta in Canada. She has seven years of experience in the commercial sex industry. Uh, she operated brothels, opened her own brothel, and she worked her way out of the industry. She's now 10 years out, uh, which is awesome. And she's uh, now an activist and an advocate for women who are looking to get out themselves. She's the author of a new book coming out later this year that we talk about. And, and this book is going to help move the conversation from the selling side of the equation and, and focused on women to talking about the demand side and men and the accountability that men need to take. Um, and she comes at it from a very analytical and insights-driven perspective. So we get into that a little bit. We talk about the the legal landscape today around prostitution how the term sex work has turned into propaganda in today's culture. And then we get into a little bit of the impact of the movie Sound of Freedom. It's it's generating some, some great awareness around sex trafficking. And we talk about um, talk about that movie a little bit and and what it is doing for the conversation uh, around trafficking and exploitation. So it's it's a it's a great conversation. I'm just blessed that Andrew and I um, have made this connection and um, I'm definitely going to get her back on later this year when her book comes out. But um, hey, let's just jump into the conversation today and um, episode number 73 of Unmasked with Andrea Hines. Andrea, it is so good to have you back on the Unmasked podcast this week. Thank you so much. It is so good to be back with you, Neil. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I love following following you on Twitter to see what, uh, and I'm glad you're back on Twitter because I think when we talked last year, you might've been in a cone of silence around Twitter, I think, uh, for a few months. Yeah. I have a love hate relationship with it. It's just such a time sucker. You know, you make such good connections, but it, you know, as soon as you post something, you get into the discourse and then you're, you're locked onto your phone for the next three to four hours. And I just don't have that kind of time lately. <laughs> yeah, it is. You are right. It is. It can be a destructive distraction for sure. If, uh, if yeah. uh, you're not mentally prepared for, for everything that goes on. So I've been more of a lurker on there recently. Um, than anything else, but um, I do appreciate all of the uh, conversations that you're able to put yourself in the middle of on there. Um, hey, be so Thanks. before, yeah, before we, we jump in here, can you just uh, take a second to remind everyone who you are and what you do these days? Sure. Um, so my name is Andrea Hines. I am a 40 year old woman who lives in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And I have uh, seven years of experience in the commercial sex industry from 2006 to 2013. Operated out of several brothels, experienced a lot of harm and victimization in those early years when I was young and uh, desperately in need and naive. And uh, thought the solution to my problems was to open my own brothel. And uh, I, I was under the guise of the safety myth, thinking that it would be safe 
if it was just done the right way. So at 25 years old, I wasn't ready to exit the industry yet. I still had goals and educational pursuits that I was going after. So uh, in my idealism, I guess, of keeping women and myself safe, I opened up a brothel, a small two-room brothel at the age of 25, which I had and uh, regrettably operated uh, renting rooms to other women for 18 months alongside myself as I continued to sell sex. And uh, five years into seven of my time in prostitution, I had a very hard uh, wake-up call and realized, uh, you know, the harm that's inherent to the industry and kind of the house of cards tumbled, so to speak. And I tried to start working my way out of the industry, which I was able to do successfully on my first attempt on December 19th, 2012. So I've been out now just over 10 years and have been an activist and an advocate since then. I've worked for nonprofit orgs, helping women testify in court against abusers. I've sat on uh, charities as a, as a board of director. Um, I've uh, been doing some writing, some filmmaking, some speaking in parliament, just trying to lend some experience and, and that voice of uh, experience wherever I can. And so um, I remember when we talked last time, the one the one line that you had mentioned to me that really just has been in my mind and I I. I share it all the time and and, and let people know that it, it, you're the one that that sort of shared this with me, which is you, you said while you were while you were working in um in prostitution that that poverty was your pimp. Can mm. can you can you just explain that kind of that that mindset again? Sure. And and that's such a powerful line. And I want to say that's not my words. Um, I basically parrot that. I, I can't remember the woman who said it initially, but it was a survivor and she had said that. Mm. And when she said that, I saw myself in those words and I, 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 like you, felt so much weight and power in those words. And so I've repeated it, but I, I really should learn who was the original uh, person that said that because <laughs> I I am often credited with saying that and I I always try to be clear that that wasn't me who originally said that phrase but um yeah there is really in my opinion kind of two ways that people end up in the commercial sex industry and either that's through economic destitution or through third party coercion or force so for me there wasn't the third party coercion or force I was never pimped I was never trafficked. Uh, I was lured in by a newspaper ad promising exorbitant amounts of money and glamour and all these things. But um, the only way really that that paper ad got me was because I was so in debt. I was about $60,000 in debt. And that was from a string of financially abusive relationships and a lack of financial literacy and just being young and not having any really good job uh presented to me or any kind of education that could secure me a, a good job with a livable wage. So I think, you know, that phrase is so powerful because so many young women see ourselves in it because it's just so universal for, for the reality of, of many of us at that age and stage in our life. Yeah. And, and so I'll, I'll make sure that there's a link in the show notes for everybody listening that you can go check out the, the uh, original episode we did, which was the summer of 2022. Um, you can hear the full interview and, and the, the, um, the reason I wanted to have you back on today is just, well, 
hey, a lot can happen over a year. I know there's just a lot of conversation about sex trafficking and um, especially with the uh, Sound of Freedom movie that is out right now. And before we before we jump into that, though, I, I do want to ask, like, what does your advocacy work look like today? Because you've got a you've got a book coming out. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, it's frustrating because when we spoke last, I think I said to you, yeah, Neil, I got this film and this book coming out right away. Yeah. And here we are a year later and I'm <laughs> I'm still not published. Uh, I'm still not having this docuseries released. So it's interesting because I think once you start diving into this, uh, the complexity of these subjects, uh, trafficking, sexual exploitation, like they are so oh my gosh, just so complex and yeah. large that to really do justice to these topics, you really have to dedicate a lot of time and it it produces a big volume of work. So could my co-author Kathy King and I have had our book published by now? Absolutely. But it was always like, oh, we didn't mention this. Oh, we didn't build off of that. And so we really wanted to come out strongly with a very powerful uh, book that can be used as, you know, a tool, as a piece of information rather than just some kind of casual reading. We want it to be influential. And uh, it's it's quite scholarly, academic, APA mm. style. So writing that is not easy. In, in my opinion, that's the hardest writing to do in comparison to narrative writing and uh, things like that. So we are done with the book and now we're still trying to do just the little things that, again, we didn't really anticipate, like tweaking a lot of page layout stuff and just uh, finalizing like an index. And then, of course, as you move page layout, well, now your index page has changed and all this stuff. So, yeah, we're working with our publisher I swear, one of the reasons why I'm not on Twitter is because I'm always at my computer working on that book. <laughs> so people See, might that, think I'm lacking, but I'm not. <laughs> so I will say I give you kudos to that, because if I get on my laptop and try to write, then I can hear like Elon Musk whispering in my ear, come to Twitter, come, yeah. come over, come look. <laughs> and then I get distracted and I go down the rabbit holes. And then next thing I know, well, there goes my time. I wanted to been writing i've just given it to nothing so yeah i had to actually delete my twitter and that's probably yeah. what you're talking about when i just fell off and yeah that was when you're trying to meet an original deadline of just submitting the the finished manuscript so i was like i gotta lock it down i gotta just focus but yes so the book is actually titled when men buy sex who really pays so it, uh, basically like the entire premise of the book is shifting the focus away from the uh, supply side to the demand side, because as you know, and everybody knows, it's always been the focus on the women, you know, what are they doing? How did this happen to them? How can we help them? And while those conversations are very important and we do still need to have them, sex buyers have largely been invisible. They've, you know, had protected anonymity. We just don't hear about them. We don't hear from them. People talk about sexual exploitation like it happens, you know, miraculously without yeah. this other person being there as a an actor inflicting these harms. So our book really shifts the focus and starts talking about how ending demand is the preferred strategy and and the right strategy to go after these larger issues of exploitation and trafficking. Yeah, I, and I, I absolutely think that's that's where the focus needs to be on, and you know, and in, in because of my the circles of that I've run 
run into through um, through some of the organizations I've had a chance to to work with, you know, and be able to talk to survivors and people who are experts and in, in this and um, like it's just it's it's got to be on the demand side. I think like there was um there was a recent uh, sting operation in Missouri earlier this year, and they there's more time focused on like a there were some victims that were arrested in this because they wouldn't, they did not want to admit that they were being trafficked for fear that when they got out when they got released, that their pimp would come after them if they gave them up. And so now these operations now, instead of going after the demand, now they're back to, seems like they're focusing on the victims, but not treating the victims with any sort of you know human decency and respect and that they are actually truly a sex traffic victim but that they're the ones that deserve the the uh the prosecution mm-hmm. yeah it's very complicated and in a lot of places uh you know domestic violence like intimate partner violence when you look at that you don't need a complainant uh in many jurisdictions the um the crown can be the complainant but I don't think that that has carried over into situations of exploitation and trafficking. None that I'm aware of. Maybe, maybe it does exist, but I think, uh, you know, that's the challenge right there too, is to recognize like the fear and the threats that so many victims live under and how that could impact their uh, lack of willingness to come forth and and state what has happened to them. So yeah, you know, everything kind of moves so quickly, but one thing that doesn't move quickly is law and it's really hard to keep caught up with these things and try to stay on top of it and and really be progressive and be fair and recognize, you know, these power differentials and how we can better address them. So from your vantage point, how do you see the the legal landscape? Has it shifted at all over the past year? I know that in Texas, I believe they've made it a felony now to purchase sex and as I mentioned to you before we mentioned to you before we started recording, I know there's some efforts in Missouri to do that, and I'm going to be advocating uh, as loud as I can for that over the next year. I'm curious from from kind of how you see things in in Canada and in uh, the other people that you're talked to, what the legal landscape might look like. Mm-hmm. Well, first and foremost, thank you for doing that, right? Because we do need more men speaking up, and especially experiential men who have been on the demand side and have changed their ways. Like that's there's so much power in that narrative. So you know, like I said, first and foremost, thank you for doing that. That's bravery right there. And, you know, um, taking action to help. So yeah, you guys have, uh, have some good gains from what we've been hearing, like Maine, uh, the state of Maine recently adopted partial decriminalization. So that's super encouraging, but I know that you guys also, uh, down in America are at risk of full decrim in several states. I think it's uh, New York, Hawaii, Massachusetts, Vermont, Missouri. Like there's there's a big threat of full decrim uh, both in America and Canada. And so in Canada, we're also still under risk of full decrim. It's it's really been a long, arduous battle, I think, since the early 2000s here of going back and forth. And maybe I'll give a little bit of quick background for yeah. people who don't know the Canadian background to kind of understand where we are now. But in uh, 2013, the Supreme Court of Canada struck down uh, three provisions of our prostitution laws at the time, which was keeping a common body house, so a brothel, 
public communication as well as living off the avails of prostitution. And this was a, a really infamous charter challenge, uh, Canada. We have the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So uh, there was three women, experiential women, who came forth and challenged the prostitution laws at the time, uh, saying that they violated Section 7 of our charter, which is the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. So this trial, if anyone wants to really read it, oh my gosh, first of all, dedicate about a month of time, because it's just so incredibly complex and lengthy, but it's it's known as the Bedford decision, uh, named after one of the applicants, the three applicants. So uh, when the Supreme Court of Canada struck down these three provisions, all of us in Canada thought that we were heading towards full decrim, and we were terrified of that. Uh, but basically, Parliament was given one year at that time to create new laws so then we were all sitting and waiting, kind of like, what is our conservative government that we had at the time going to come up with? So thanks to many feminists uh, and feminist organizations that did tireless and remarkable work, we did end up getting a Nordic model style law. And, and that law is called the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act. So that came into effect at the end of 2014. And that was the first time in Canada that uh, the purchase of sex was criminalized. And the the law recognized prostitution as a form of violence against women and uh, sought to combat the commercialization of sexual exploitation. So that was really encouraging. We were all, you know, doing the happy dance, like, oh, my gosh, because rarely do we have these kinds of wins, you know, and, and it was really quite progressive to see like, wow, OK, Canada is acknowledging this. But unfortunately, there was no political will to actually endorse it. And there was even actually promises to repeal it by the Liberal Party at the time. And uh, so as a result, we've really seen no meaningful or consistent enforcement of the law, except for some little pockets throughout Canada that are probably a little bit more conservative in nature. So when we've had no endorsement and no uniform enforcement, this has really given ammunition to a, a new charter challenge to be launched, which is what we're facing now. And the argument of that is, well, if you look, we've had 10 years of PASEPA, this Nordic model style law, and the situation has not improved. But um, again, that goes back to not endorsing it and enforcing it, but it actually is also a lie. Because when you look, we uh, they did an examination of five years prior to the law and five years after the law. And from 2010 to 2014, when we did get that law, there was 54 individuals in prostitution who were murdered. But the five years after the law, 2015 to 2019, that number went down from 54 to 35. So we have seen less deaths since that implementation. And we've also seen less uh, sex sellers arrested. And that number has gone down substantially. I think it's something like 97%. So less women are being arrested, less women are being murdered. But still, we have this group of 25 uh, so-called sex worker organizations who have now banded together, calling themselves the Canadian Alliance for Sex Work Law Reform. And they want to repeal the entire act. And, and they're using the, the typical compartmentalization argument of, you know, sex work is not to be conflated with human trafficking or sexual assault. You know, it's all very neat and boxed in. But as you know, and I know, you can't separate voluntarily yeah. and, and involuntary prostitution. So 
Uh, it's very scary. We're on the doorstep of it. We're waiting on a decision from the Ontario Superior Court. And I think regardless of what that court determines, we're going to be going up to the next highest level court again, which is our Supreme Court of Canada. But uh, if this group is successful, buying sex will no longer be a crime in Canada. Advertising another person for prostitution, no longer a crime. Uh, living off the avails or receiving a material benefit, no longer a crime. And also encouraging someone to sell their body for money, that will also be decriminalized. So it's scary times and it's wow. it's tiresome, you know, because we're doing all this work to just keep a law that we haven't actually invested into. So how much good work has not been done simply because we're fighting it out over, you know, if this should be regulated, legalized, decriminalized, criminalized, like it, it's just spinning our wheels. And as a result, you know, experiential people are suffering. They're not getting the attention that they need to improve their situations and their lives. And can can you just explain real quick the difference between the Nordic model and full decriminalization of prostitution? Sure. So full decriminalization is basically what I said uh, we are at risk of here in Canada, where, again, purchasing sex wouldn't be a crime. You know, advertising someone, taking their money, encouraging them to enter the industry, none of these things. So Decrim is basically saying that there is no laws on the books whatsoever surrounding commercial sex. Um, people who support full decrim say, well, you know, we have laws around assault. So if someone assaults a person in the sex industry, charge them with assault. They they really see it as uh, unnecessary to have any laws per specifically to uh, prostitution. But I think that's very ignorant because there's that dynamic of it being a form of, of gendered and social violence. Uh, whereas, you know, if you go the partial decrim route, you are naming the harm and you are holding the perpetrators of that harm accountable by criminalizing them, which, yeah, okay, it's unfortunate to see anyone criminalized because it impacts your life negatively. But there has to be some measure of justice for victims and some measure of accountability and also some type of restraint on that behavior, which we know causes problems. So a Nordic model will criminalize the demand side, but it will uh, make exempt from prosecution the supply side. So um, it's, yeah. it's partially frame, as, as people would call it. Well, and I think that's part of the problem that we have. Well, part of the problem that I experienced, right? There was no consequence for my actions. And, it, you know, I, I could do whatever I want, basically. And the person that was likely going to get in trouble for the interaction I was having was the person I was buying. Mm -hmm. If anyone was going to get in trouble with the law, it would it would have been her, not me. So what's what's the motivation, right, for for me to to not want to do this? There There is yeah. none. And um, I was just, you know, thinking about this today, like, you know, if you, so they've just, you know, a lot of states now here in the U.S. are starting to legalize marijuana. And in the state of Missouri, we just legalized it this year. But so what do you think happened? Well, all these new marijuana shops started to open up and it created a ton of demand. What's going to happen if you say, okay, prostitution's legal have fun, everybody. Like what, I mean, like that's going to create so much demand and people, traffickers are still going to need to traffic women to fill that demand. 
Exactly. You don't have enough of these so-called happy hookers to fill all these beds and brothels when there's this um, climate of entitlement and ease of access to the body of somebody else for your one-sided orgasm. So, you know, again, I go back to saying I'm not a fan of seeing people criminalized, but many studies have actually shown that fear of arrest is the number one deterrent for people when they're deciding to go exploit someone sexually. And so I, I'm a very, very strong believer in John schools. And I think that we do need to step up the amount of men that we are arresting for this crime. And we also need to offer them opportunities for rehabilitation. Yes. I think if they you know, continue to be repeat offenders and if they, they can't grasp or are unwilling to grasp the nature of what they're doing, then okay, then arrest them and charge them and, and put it on their their books, right? Like keep them with that, that record. But I do think that there's a lot of ignorance and a lot of social conditioning that also falls upon men where, you know, this propaganda of sex work is work is really also affecting them where I I think a lot of men wouldn't be sex buyers if they had all the information that they could have, but that's hidden from them because they're the ones with the money and people want that money from them. And I I think education is the key, right? And again, that was what I just speak from my experience. I had no idea that the women I were visiting, whether they were trafficked or not, but it, it, it doesn't matter, right? Whatever I was, even if I was paying them and they weren't trafficked, it was still coercion. I was still mm-hmm. using that money to coerce them into doing things they didn't want to do, right? And so, like, and I know we had we had this conversation the last time we talked. You had this different strata levels of men, you know, and that that middle segment of men who just a lot of them are broken and while that doesn't excuse their behavior and we should definitely i think that's where i think the criminalization of buying sex comes into i do think there and i'm an example right there is a chance to rehabilitate somebody and Mm -hmm. to call them out of that that existence and put them on a different path yeah And many men are very grateful for that as well, too. I've had 10 years of involvement in Edmonton's John School, our sex trade offender program. And uh, I've seen so many men break down crying and, you know, thanking us actually for arresting, well, not us for arresting them, we're just facilitators, but thanking police for arresting them and thanking us for giving them the information and saying, oh my gosh, this is just a a capitalist money-making system and I'm just the 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 mark you know they just want my money like i'm just you know a, a problem in this cycle and in this system and if i can remove myself from it then there's a better chance that you know it won't be as strong because there isn't that money that i'm giving to a, a potential trafficker or exploiter and I'm, I'm glad you brought up the 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 uh, sex work phrase and tying it to propaganda because i know that's a big it's a big conversation on twitter in certain mm-hmm. segments of that. And, and I'm just like, and I never thought of it that way where if I'm a, if I'm a potential buyer and if I hear the term sex work, how that might condition me not to view this person as, as someone maybe in harm or in danger, but truly someone who, who wants to be there. That's I, I had never, I hadn't really considered how that propaganda actually influences the way someone might think about, about that term and about that person they were going to see. Yeah, language. Language is such a huge thing. And um, I often 
go back to talking about a man named uh, Dr. Robert Lifton, who in 1989 wrote a paper and the name of it is escaping me right now, but within his paper, he outlined several criteria for what constituted thought reform, um, cult-like mentality. And I was so wowed by it that I, I wrote a paper that's been published by the radical notion called sex work ideology as cult-like thought reform. And uh, one of the the tactics that he speaks about is something called loading the language. And what that does is it serves to alter people's thought processes to conform them to a particular way of thinking. And uh, so what he talks about is something called thought stoppers and uh, sex work, calling it that phrase is undoubtedly a thought stopper because uh, it creates a singular labor analysis and it doesn't take into any consideration emotional impact or, you know, spiritual impact or social impact. It, it really kind of, it, it hides the harm. It sanitizes it a lot. And whenever we do that, we create the singular labor analysis, sex work is work. Really the debate is done before it even gets started because then people will say, well, it's work, but now how do we make it safe? So it really shuts down any examination or exploration of could this be something else? Could this be compensated sexual abuse? Could this be sexual exploitation? Um, but that that singular labor analysis has really been so incredibly detrimental to the good work that we're trying to do to garner equality in society amongst people. Because, um, you know, sex work, the term was, I think, originally intended to reduce stigma against sellers instead of the common term prostitute, which was and is very derogatory. But even though the intent was to reduce stigma, it didn't have that effect. As we can see, women are still, you know, extremely stigmatized for for their own exploitation. So what that did instead, that phrase is it essentially normalized the course of sex and it numbed people to the dehumanization and degradation and, and gendered violence that is so inherent to commercializing sex. So, uh, you know, this language, it's it's been institutionalized as well. It's been adopted by the United Nations Program on HIV AIDS or UNAIDS, uh, World Health Organization, governments everywhere, particularly Western governments like um, the Canadian government, the uh, Justice Committee did a review of our prostitution laws of PSEPA. And throughout the entire report, the the entire report just says sex work, sex worker, sex work. Like it's throughout. There's never, you know, really much that counters that labor analysis. And so, you know, these individuals and organizations that have been conditioned and then go on to adopt this labor language and use it, they are then, you know, further uh, conditioning other people and other organizations. And that just creates this larger effect of dismissal regarding really the brutal realities that are are part of this activity. So um, it's very, very frustrating because we keep going back to this basic argument of, you know, sex work is work. No, it isn't. Sex work is work. No, it isn't. And so that, again, is another thing that stops the good work from being done because we're just arguing about terms and definitions. But it is something that we do have to combat because it has this sanitizing effect. Right. But um, 
you know, if we want to move beyond that argument, I, I also highly recommend a paper that I, I just love this paper. I try to tell everybody about it. <laughs> uh, it's a 2020 paper that was written by uh, an Australian researcher, Megan Tyler, and her paper is called All Roads Lead to Abolition, Debates About Prostitution and Sex Work Through the Lens of Unacceptable Work. So she kind of moves beyond that whole argument of is sex work work and she starts examining it saying okay even if we want to accept that we're going to call it work uh by definition is it acceptable work like is it safe is it healthy for people is it fulfilling is it all those things or is it you know detrimental to us as a society because we have a lot other forms of unacceptable work you know things like child labor and stuff like that so yeah, it just it's it's very frustrating because it is propaganda. And, you know, when when you're young, these mantras are very, very easy to get behind and jump on because they don't require any true critical analysis. And, you know, sometimes people just don't like to dig deep into things and really see the root of issues. It's much easier to just come across as an ally and champion a simple mantra, you know, sex work is work. And right. Straight, no problems. And I want to go back to, and this is completely tangent here. So just bear with me on this because you, you've actually triggered a childhood memory for me that is kind of crazy. But you had mentioned just a short time ago this idea about this happy hooker, and it just mm-hmm. it it um, and then it triggered a thought in my head. There was so when I grew up in the late seventies, early eighties, when cable TV was just getting off the ground. There's a movie that came on late at night on, on probably would have been Showtime or Cinemax. It's called The Happy Hooker. And oh, wow. Yeah, I, it was, it was I'm just Google it right now. It was made in 1975. It was it was definitely a you know rated R soft core type of movie, but depicted someone who fell in love with the being a prostitute because of how much she likes sex and how much money it brought in. And I mean, and talk about propaganda. And I, I just, I'm mean, just thinking it from my own experience, like, cause I probably saw that movie when I was 11 or 12 years old when I wasn't, shouldn't have been watching it, but it was right there in front of me on cable TV. Um, mm. That here, 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 my brain is already being conditioned to think that this is a good thing. And I just, so I don't mean to go on that tangent, but you, when you said that, I'm like, Home. I haven't thought about that movie in a really long time, and it now it sort of comes full circle as to how how as, as you've probably heard me say before how my you know my brain and my culture was basically seduced right from me as a as a preteen by pornography and through these kind of movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's happening on such a grand scale, and it's been happening for a long time. And Pretty Woman is another example yeah. of that. Yeah. Talking about this woman who's standing on a street corner and oh you know this very attractive and very wealthy man is all of a sudden going to come and essentially save her and these things just aren't realistic um and i'm definitely not one for stifling free speech like i don't agree with down anyone talking about what they want to talk about but the problem to me is that it's very one-sided and being an abolitionist and speaking to the other side of the debate 
I have been silenced extremely over on multiple occasions over the last 10 years of activism. I can't even probably tell you how many times that I've submitted pieces of writing that I've tried to secure, um, you know, rebuttal interviews for, you know, sex positive, distorted sex positive arguments that have been put out there. Um, and, and I'm regularly shut down. And I just think, wow, you know, like even little things like trying to secure funding for the docuseries that I'm doing, I can almost guarantee you if I would have been doing a pro-sex work film, I wouldn't have had the funding issues that I had. But there's this vilification of feminists when they are opposed to commercial sexual exploitation is, you know, we're seen as anti-woman, we're seen as anti-freedom. It's always this, you know, we're anti-something. But really, I say we're pro-equality, we're pro-women, we're pro-men, because we think that men deserve better than to be reduced to you know, a, an ATM machine um, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's it's very frustrating because there's a strong lean in pop culture and media to go towards that narrative because it's much more palatable and it's romantic and exciting. Whereas if you talk about dissociation, if you talk about suicide ideation, if you talk about the numbness, the depression, the violence, um, it, none of that inspires or incites any kind of good things really, you know, in people, right. they, they want the happy stuff. So um, it, it's frustrating. We're always, you know, swimming upstream. Uh, and so speaking of movies, I want to make sure that I, um, that I get into this, uh, the sound of freedom, since that seems to be what everybody's talking about these days, at least in, when it comes on the trafficking side of things. And I'm just, I, I know you haven't had a chance to, to see the movie yet. Uh, but, uh, and, and I have, um, and so I, I will tell you that, I mean, I, I, I don't know all the, the gory details about the, I, I can't think of the guy's name now, Tim Ballard, I think, right. Who was this kind of the star yeah. of the movie and who was the one who did the rescuing. And so I don't, I don't know the political aspects behind his motivation and, and some of that, um, it was, it, it was, it was a Hollywood movie. And and you know my personal opinion is that we need more of this content out there, and you know, and I come I, and it's kind of crazy how this has sort of become sort of a left versus right topic. I'm not and I'm I'm not sure how that happened, um, because it should be everybody, everyone should be concerned about this issue, not just one side of the political aisle or the other. Um. <clears throat> It raises awareness on trafficking, and it's got people talking about trafficking, which is which is a good thing. But, and this is what I've heard for some other survivors, and I'm curious if how you feel about it is. Is it focused on the wrong thing? Is it taking people's attention to the the pieces of the trafficking industry that, while they they exist, the the majority of the issues which happen in North America are are doesn't look like obvious trafficking when it happens because it's happening online. And I'm curious, just I'm curious if you've had a chance to, I know you said, you know, you haven't seen the movie, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on how these, these are typically portrayed in movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I haven't unfortunately had the chance to see it. Like you said, I've been trying to get myself to a theater. I, I don't think I've been to a movie theater in like 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what happens when you have three children and right. you're doing a, you, you are always at home. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I tend to, you know, defer to 
women who have been trafficked that I know of, because again, that was not my experience. And so I've, you know, kind of been in circles and in conversations where this movie has been brought up and it's basically kind of the same sentiment as, as you just said, where people are appreciative that these conversations are being brought to light, but sometimes it's under this guise of uh, helping where it's really just about profiting again. Yeah. So you have to wonder, is the intent actually genuine or is it to, again, uh, exploit someone and their their exploitation in order to profit off of that? So uh, some individuals that I know that have been trafficked have said that they found the film to be highly sensationalized, just like you said, uh, not really reflective of the, the American, North American uh, situation, mm-hmm. which is a lot of cross-border trafficking within countries so like in canada for example we don't have a lot of uh trafficking victims that are identified that have been like smuggled overseas into canada or anything like that uh 50 of our trafficking victims are indigenous women and girls who are typically lured from reserve areas in our country and um, duped, you know, deceived into believing that they'd be doing some type of other employment and then forced into prostitution. So it's really nice to see that there is this conversation happening about trafficking on a grand scale and people are are hearing this. But I think also the big problem about that is like, this seems to be kind of the trendy hot topic. Yeah. And, and again, that's great. But we stop with looking at third party exploitation. Okay. These pimps traffickers, they're terrible people, but again, the men remain anonymous. So I guess you've seen the movie, but like, do they even touch on how demand is essentially what drives traffickers to traffic individuals or are men, are the buyers even mentioned at all? So it's, it's interesting. And I'm not sure how many people picked up on it. Um, I, I certainly did from my, background as as a buyer but there was a scene in there where there is sort of a a side hero if you will of the movie is a gentleman who lives in um who lives in the country where tim Beller tim Beller was going to i think it was was it columbia uh he was going to help him get this one girl they were looking for and he talks about a story that which i thought was interesting he did get in this character said that he you know, the reason he had basically had an encounter with God after he purchased um, someone who was the age of 14. And it was at that moment when he realized what the, you know, what he was doing and turned his life around and now has become this uh, kind of this in the movie anyways, was sort of this underground figure of someone who was out there trying to rescue kids who had been trafficked uh, because he had seen the errors of his way so they they do address it um but and i mean it's again i don't want to and i don't i wouldn't want to say that like we shouldn't have this type of content even if it doesn't match up to 100 what we want it to be like i think having these conversations is good and i think this is an opportunity for people like you and for me to be out here talking about okay this is one avenue but now here's here's what else is happening and here's here's how we need to take on the demand side of things but you know they didn't really address i mean there was some a little bit of child pornography mentioned in there somewhat but it was more of like they were putting a catalog together of 
kids they could choose from online to, to then to actually go and buy uh, versus just kind of like the, which I believe, right, is the general idea that just pornography in general is contributing to this brokenness in men and driving up demand. So there's is a good first step. I think there's lots of opportunity out there. I'd love to see the, the movie being made um, about that that woman or or teenager who's who's being exploited online and sending pictures, and the next thing you know, it turns into her being prostituted out. And how how men are driving that? I mean, that's that's the conversation we need to be having. But I guess you had to start somewhere. It is, yeah. There's these little focal points that it seems people like to hone in on and trafficking, like I said, is kind of the trending thing right now, which again, that's fantastic. But when we take that zoom out approach, we see that again, it's the demand for these so-called sex services that are, you know, encouraging exploiters to find people to complete those, those tasks, those, you know, so-called services again. So you know, it's interesting because like everybody can get behind trafficking, right? You're never going to find one person that's like, oh yeah, trafficking is great. You know, we right. should decriminalize that. Like people are all, even people who champion sex work ideology uh, and want to see buyers decriminalized, they they as well don't want to see traffickers decriminalized, most of them at least that I've known. But so everyone gets behind trafficking, but it's very rare to find people that get behind addressing demand as a root cause of yeah. why trafficking happens and you know and i also have to wonder like how much were survivors of trafficking um consulted for this film like that's really to me something very important like any time that i do any work around trafficking specifically which i i don't i typically tend to focus on just commercialized sexual exploitation but if i get into doing that type of work i always always try to consult or partner with someone who has endured that um, and, and of course there's experience that comes with, you know, working as an advocate in those areas, but you really have to have the, the people with the experience to kind of keep you in check and sort of say, no, you're sensationalizing this or, Hey, when you say it this way, it could be, uh, mis- you know, misinterpreted as this. So I, I don't know who, if any survivors were involved in, you know, the making of the film and kind of overseeing it or anything like that, but yeah, I, I really need to go just so I can get a better opinion. Yeah, on so and I, 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 yeah, and I, I'm not sure. Uh, I know that there does seem to be a lot of pushback from survivors on the movie. And when I, in fact, I was talking to a survivor um, recently about it, and she said one of her concerns was that people are going to see this movie. Victims of trafficking might see this movie and think well, I'm not trafficked because I'm not being, you know, I'm, I'm not in a shipping container. I'm not being mm-hmm. held against my will. Um, I must not be a trafficking victim. And that was, that was one of her biggest concerns of how it might, you know, mess with the mind of a victim if, if they were to see the movie. That's true. But, yeah. There's always these like yeah. super sensationalized depictions of these things. And that's what we, we really don't get into the gray enough. We, we tend to yeah. just lean towards what sells and what has that big like wow effect to it and yeah well it's a it's a it's a heavy topic and gosh we could we could go on for i know we can go on for a lot longer and and just have a conversation and i just i I value this conversation so 
Uh, I, I definitely want to have you back on a third time when this when you get this book out. When um, do you have an ETA on when people might be able to buy this book? So 2030. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> that, you could probably say that and at least be safe because every time I'm yeah. like six, it's okay, like like six, maybe maybe a year from now. But um, yeah, so the goal for sure is to have it out by the end of this year. Um, we're at such a good point right now of, you know, doing all the, the uh, sideline stuff, I guess you could call it. So like the websites and, you know, starting to create social pages and all yeah. that kind of stuff. That's been encouraging to me. I'm like, oh, thank God we're not just sitting and typing and editing. And we must've edited that book. I'm not even joking, like 60, 70 times and <laughs> it's 400 pages. So every time is a read through and you're always wow. finding stuff, and it's just never ending, but uh, the goal is to have it out by year end. We'd like to hopefully have it out by November so that people can consider it for Christmas purchases because uh, all of our profits are going to be going towards charitable efforts here to end sexual exploitation in Canada, as well as exit opportunities and programs for that. So we really, uh, my co-author, Kathy King and I, we really did this book as a, a labor of love in some way of like, okay, you know, she's retired and I'm basically still a student and a mom and not working full-time, neither of us are. So it's hard for us to really make a financial impact in any way, but we are so aware of the need for that. So we said, well, we do have our time. So we dedicated, you know, two years of working on this book and, and said, we're going to donate all the profits to helping individuals. So we really want to see some good sales for it and, in turn, some really good programming and support, you know, created for those who are being exploited here in Canada. So I will yeah. keep you updated. But the goal is year end. I'm I'm not okay. going to knock on wood right here. I won't hold you to it. But uh, boy, I definitely will be uh, hope that you can make that happen. And that's awesome that you're going to um, donate the proceeds to organizations that are that are trying to help these these women and these victims, which is which is awesome. And I know you're going to be very popular and very in demand when this book comes out to, um, to talk about it. So, yeah, so, uh, I'll be, uh, it'll be a, definitely an honor to get you back on and, and have you, um, talk about it in greater detail when it comes out in 2023. Yeah. In 2023. In 20, at some point. <laughs> and, well, and you have a direct link to me. So no matter how busy yeah. I might get, which, which we hope we do get a good, uh, yeah, you know, you will. Sean on it. I, I'm always available to link up with you and reconnect and touch base and update on everything that we're both doing. And as well, thank you, you know, for keeping these conversations going because we need more of it and you're doing great work. Thanks again to Andrea for coming on Unmasked this week. Truly appreciate her and all the work that she is doing and grateful to have a chance to to be on the same side of this uh, battle with her and and the chance to connect with her more. And uh, I'll put a link to the older episode that she did last year. You can check out uh, more of that conversation in the show notes. And again, I, I plan on on having Andrea back when her book comes out later this year. I think it's going to be a, an awesome read and um, just, you know, we, again, we just have to continue to raise awareness on the demand side of trafficking and exploitation. All right, coming up next week on Mast. Um, next week's a little bit of a personal um, uh, show. Next week, I have uh, Leah Stanley coming on, and Leah is a an expert in dementia and Alzheimer's. She's written a book about caregiving, and she comes at it from a from well from a from a believer standpoint. So I was really interested to have a conversation with her and. 
Uh, and again, like I said, it was personal because my mom is is suffering from dementia, and so I it was just a chance to it was just an awesome chance to to talk to Leah, talk about caregiving, what it means to to um, you know how to support someone with dementia, and then we talked about it from obviously from a from a biblical standpoint and from a a Christ-centered standpoint as well for some of the conversations. So um, it was a it was a great conversation. I it helped me learn a lot. Helped me learn how to um, and it helped me pass. I'm going to pass it along to my sister, who's really the caregiver of our mom. But uh, it's a great interview, so I'm excited to share that one with you next week. All right, hey everybody, thanks for tuning in this week. I promise I'm coming back next week. No more days off for a while. And uh, hey, look, just remember. Jesus didn't come just to hang out with the saints and the righteous. He came to hang out with the sick and the sinners of the world, just like you, very much just like me. He didn't come to celebrate our sins and revel in our sins. He came came to call us out of it and to follow it. All right, everybody. Have a great week.